what's green lithium for you and where, where, where can it come from? Canada and the United States have phenomenal uh, lithium resources. This Alberta company, E3 Metals, is a lot of lithium that's in the Leduc Reservoir. Welcome back to Rockstock Channel and thanks for checking in. Before we launch into the interview, we'd like to thank all our Patreon sponsors. And for those of you who are new, share a bit about us. RK Equity is an advisory firm run by Rodney Hooper and me, Howard Klein. We are exclusively focused on raising awareness about companies producing or developing the next generation critical raw materials that are powering Tesla's EV battery energy transition. Please register your email at rkequity.com and follow Rodney and me on LinkedIn and Twitter. Please also subscribe to this channel, Rockstock Channel on YouTube, as well as Lithium Ion Rocks on SoundCloud for our podcasts. Please note, Rodney and me are not financial advisors or broker dealers. Nothing you hear in this video is investment advice. Please do your own research and read the disclaimer at the end of this video or on our website. Thanks again for the support and let's get into the video. It's actually a Canadian discount. Canadian listed companies with Canadian projects. It seems like Vancouver and Toronto hasn't really caught on to the, to the new lithium trend yet. It's very, 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 very encouraging, Kai, that you said what you just said, because there's so much more retail investors. They've not like kind of come in and understood this. Piedmont was trading at 50, 100 million market cap nine months ago. Now it's over a billion dollars. We are welcoming Chris Dornbos for the second time. Uh, we did a podcast, Lithium Ion Rocks, in November of 2019. So uh, E3 at the time of that podcast was about an 8 million market cap at the very, very bottom of you know the lithium market scoreboard that I keep track of. And like hot song moving up the billboard charts, uh, you know, E3 has, has, has climbed quite a bit, uh, although in the last, uh, you know, few last two weeks or so, the stocks pulled in ahead of some, uh, I guess, your four month hold on the last placement you did or one of the last placements you did is, is upcoming. So that that sometimes happens. But what's transpired, you know, in the last you know few months, you know, operationally, you had a PEA, you've raised some capital. And most importantly, what are the um, kind of milestones over the course of this year? In general, RK Equity, as big a fan of uh, we are of um, you know the hard rock to hydroxide story, our, our second you know great preference um, is for these DLE stories uh, for a whole host of reasons, and uh, we think the market has been more receptive to them in, in the case of Standard Lithium, Vulcan Energy Resources. Lake Resources and, and Lilac receiving funding from Bill Gates Breakthrough Energy Coalition. And there's a lot of activity in the Salton Sea as well in California. But as one of only four public equity plays, uh, even though you have risen in market cap about 10 times and about five times in price, you're still trading at a very meaningful discount to Standard Lithium and Vulcan and Lake Resources. So uh, Let's just talk a little bit about what, what the recent past and, and more importantly, with all the funding you have, what milestones and catalysts you know, are, are forthcoming that you know, hopefully may lead to a um, you know, closing of this valuation gap. Um, thanks for having me back, Howard and Rodney. Um, yeah, I think the last six months for E3 really uh, has pretty, been pretty uh, foundational and, and we've seen a, a pretty massive maturation of the company. Um, and the catalyst for that was the, the preliminary economic assessment. You know, we, from the market perspective, we needed to demonstrate how a, a project that has a grade of 75 milligrams per liter 
uh, can be economic. And I think the PA really demonstrated that. It also demonstrated one of the lower operating costs for a, a battery quality lithium hydroxide. So that being the catalyst, um, you're right, we, we did raise um, some capital over the series of uh, two raises since the PA uh, and one slightly before that, uh, totaling about $14.3 million uh, raised in total over, the, over that four month time frame. On the technical side, some of the things we've done over the past couple of months, we opened up a facility here in Calgary. So we've added quite a few staff to this. Um, one gentleman in particular, uh, Chris Ward, he, he worked with me years ago. Uh, he was, he's 10 years my senior, uh, building a project in Alberta that was a $17 billion capital build. So really understands how to build projects locally, which is really important, but also build, you know, a machine and take it from a, a pilot stage and, and grow it to a commercial plant and all the nuances that come in with that. Peter Ratzleff as well, we all, we added to the team 25 years as a production engineer, moving fluids out of these aquifers in Alberta. We also added Brad Wall, a, a former premier of, of Saskatchewan, the province next door. Um, on, so on the government side of things. So the catalyst over the next you know, couple of months to, to the end of the year, um, really focusing around, obviously, first and foremost, this DLE technology. So, you know, the next stage for us is to get this pilot out. And you would have seen early April, we got a $1.8 million, uh, that's Canadian uh, grant from the Alberta government. You would have seen some quotes from ministers here in Alberta, um, supporting that, supporting lithium in Alberta, is really great to see, especially the one from Sonia Savage, who's our energy minister, um, very supportive of, and that, and that department is the one that regulates us. So very, very important to see support from, from that group. We're already doing flow, flow testing, um, and that leads to basically what we're calling the pilot product. The other thing is, is developing the aquifer, man, aquifer management plan, leading towards upgraded resource to measure indicated ultimate goal of all of this work is a pre-feasibility study. And when is the sort of target date now for the PFS? It's going to be probably Q2 next year. And the PFS for us is going to be a very robust document going to outline for the company uh, a decision point, a go-no-go no go for the commercial facility. So our capital is 600 million uh, US to start 20,000 tons. Uh, it breaks into like a, a third drilling and pipeline, a third pretreatment and DLE. So that's the, the getting the lithium out of the brine and then a third, um, you know, lithium production. And that's roughly, but it's about, about breaks out like that. The CAPEX side and the OPEX side, can those, can those yeah. tighten? Yeah. Um, you know, a good example is the number of wells that we've planned to drill. So we've assumed that we're going to drill 100% all new wells. We know that there's a very distinct possibility that we could repurpose up to 50%. Each well cost about 2.4 million. So you can understand what that would do to the capital if for every well that we can take on. There was a cost to take it on, but the differential is about two, a little under $2 million a well. So- and you, would, and you would have done that work by the time the PFS is done? Yeah, the permitting process for all that has initiated. So that sort of locks in the final location for everything. And then that also helps you lock in the price. Um, that process also allows you to go around, do that search on what's available for suspended and soon to be abandoned infrastructure that we have in Alberta, which is you know, a, a whole nother topic to talk about, which is the orphan well fund that, that we have here. 
Um, and we can start to evaluate those wells. That's what Peter's department um, will be doing is looking at, at these wells, evaluating them, make sure they're fit for purpose um, or even just the land as well. So let's say the well is not fit for purpose, but there's a, there's a drilling location there. It's got power already to it because it has a pump to move uh, you know, something um, from the aquifer that, that or another unit uh, above it, for example, because um, this is all stratified. So there's, there's potential for even non Leduc wells um, to, to deepen them, to drill beside them, that sort of stuff. So there's, there's so many opportunities here to reduce cost. And, and Peter's team will evaluate that based on where we need the wells for the PFS and what's available. And that, that's where we'll determine what we can actually take on and then we'll start to see that, that come into play. Chris, I mean, one of the things I've been really impressed with with E3 is you had, you've utilized historic drill results. You've had, you know, you've, you've grown the business in a very non-dilutive way. You've got grants, you've got the Alberta Innovate. Now, my understanding is, you know, you have a very good understanding of what the Leduc Aquifer is. There's nothing flowing in and out. It's a body of water. And if you've got a measured and indicated, it's fairly homogenous across the entire body so that if you can crack the code, you understand pretty much the entire aquifer. The geologic term is confined. Confined means that there's no instantaneous inflow outflow in the time frame, for example, of us producing. Look, in the 30-year time frame, the water is static. If you understand it and you can take a sample of it and produce what you're looking to do, then you can do it across the aquifer. The nuances of producing from this aquifer, like the, the Duke is historic. You know, the reason we were able to do what we've done so quickly and so with so little money is that we don't run out there doing these expensive exploration drill programs. We've, we haven't drilled a well yet. And, and that's all backed on the fact that this is was explored. It was discovered in the 40s, so by ExxonMobil. And it is a world-class aquifer in terms of its ability to produce fluids. The, the main body of this aquifer, all the pore space that's there is filled with this brine, the lithium's in the brine. The amount of brine that you can produce on a daily basis and the impact that has on the rest of the aquifer is absolutely fundamental. Benefit to E3 is that we're started at a reasonable size, but we can expand this uh, across the aquifer because it can support that expansion. It can support increasing brine production uh, over time because it's so big and it's you know it's so thick. If we're successful at twenty thousand tons. There's no reason why we're not going to grow that over time to 150,000 tons. And that's really the exciting side of, of what yes. E3 is. The key catalyst for me, when does E3 produce on a demonstration or pilot scale where you are only scaling out, not up? When you reach the point where you demonstrated at that level commercially, you know, uh, getting the recoveries that you expect, the, the resin having the resilience and, and the costing and so on. When does when will E3 be able to deliver that that data for shareholders to see? E3 is like walking towards the pilot. We are on that path. The, what the focus for us right now is taking advantage of, of the Ion Exchange world. Ion Exchange has become the 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 DLE system of choice. The, the real big benefit to Ion Exchange is that it scales linearly. You're going to end up with a column. And, and the best example is a, is a water softener. It's a column and it's got beads in it. And if you have one, you know that you have to fill up those beads every so often. The size of it is designed for the amount of water that your house is going to flow. And that's the same with us. We're going to build 
one of those columns at the size that it would um, work in a commercial facility. And that's what's going to pilot. And for us, that's how we're reducing the scale risk going from a pilot to a commercial facility is that if one column works, two columns will work, three columns will work. So it doesn't, at that point, you, you've significantly risked the project by deploying it in this manner. So that's, that's the goal is the, the pilot prototype will be a small scale, but similar dimension ratio to the, to the column that will go in the field. And the one that will go in the field will be a commercial column. And, and what's then, the timing on that, uh, Chris? We're looking at uh, starting that build by the end of this year, end of 2021 till to early 2022 would be my sort of window that that's going to be constructed and out to the field. And the company is working on all the other logistical things that re are required with that. For example, access to site. Um, so we're not going to drill a well to, to test this on. We're, we're working with some operators that have production um, still left. And, and that production is not a lot, but it's enough that there's enough brine coming up that we can run the pilot. All of our development work from day one has been on the Duke brine. And if you go through our peers in the space, they all did their development work on synthetic brines. The difference between the pilot prototype and the field. So the mm -hmm. field is actually out in the field using the Leduc uh, brine. Fresh brine coming straight out of the aquifer, like that's the real test, right? And that's what the pilot, that's, that's the big difference between the field pilot and the pilot prototype is really real world environment. You're sitting out in the field, you've, you've got temperature, you know, outside temperature to worry about. You've got all the nuances with the external, like getting the that's, brine. And, and that's so what I'm saying. So that's a, to, me, to my mind, that's a live proven yep. at, at ready for scale out level that will be achieved. There will be some engineering challenges and you've got to do all of the flow and so on. But once you have a column that is to commercial size, you're just going to build a lot of this identical column and then handle the engineering feat of flowing the brine, the brine through, but you will, mm -hmm. there's no, like in other projects where people build a small demonstration and then up that by 40 times when they get into production. In this instance, it's the same thing. As long as you pump it through in the same way, you've proven it already at that level. Yeah, and, and, it, and that flows through to, you know, the production of hydroxide. If you're building an electrolysis cell, if you want more production, you don't build a bigger electrolysis cell, you, you add another unit. We've been working together now for about two years and we were big skeptics on um, you know, DLE for a long period of time, but through our mutual friendship with uh, Alex Grant, who has really um, you know, carved out a niche for himself as the, as the DLE expert and, and, and champion as a, you know, one of the co-founders of Lilac, but advisor to a number of uh, companies, not to you, but um, he, when I first talked about your story with him and I got hung up a little bit on the 75 PPM brine, he described that, you know, in contrast to, let's say, um, an Argentine brine, which might be 400 PPM or 600 PPM, uh, you know, because those are living organisms, you can only pump so fast, you know. Um, so if you're doing DLE on on some of those, um, you, you still have a, a pumping issue. Whereas in Alberta, you know, in this contained aquifer, 
And you said you wrote a paper. Uh, you told me you wrote a paper with Alex about this uh, contained aquifer. I'd encourage um, all viewers to look that up. Uh, but, but basically, this lithium sitting in water, right? You, you can pump this out at a very high speed. There's like no limit to the, the pumping rate. And because you could pump it that fast, uh, the content, you could concentrate that 75 ppm a lot faster through your ion exchange resin you know, column. You're absolutely right. Like for us, the limitation for our aquifer is not the aquifer itself. And that is something that is very special. The aquifer is so amazing and can deliver so much fluid that we can't pump it fast enough. When you look at a, a DLE story, the, the throughput is what separates DLE from anyone else because you don't have to have all this big pond infrastructure. And if you want to grow your production, you don't need to add more ponds and add this these huge surface impact. You can just add more columns to your small little enclosed production facility. And then you can increase the volume of fluid that you're producing out of the aquifer. And I was talking earlier about our ability to expand our project from the initial to, to upwards of, we think, around 150,000. Um, that is all relative to the aquifer. That is because of this aquifer and, and its ability to produce fluid. You are focused on hydroxide. So when the fluids are going up through the columns, you know, they're coming out. Uh, you know, I've watched some of the standard lithium, like their first step is going to chloride, right? And yeah. then from chloride, they're going to make other products like carbonate, uh, but you're you're saying you have a choice. You can go to chloride, but you're choosing first to go to sulfate, and then sulfate is the main precursor to go to hydroxide. We we did an evaluation, a trade-off between carbonate and hydroxide, and looking at it from both a operational production and cost, also value and, and anticipated value. And I think that on the value side, I think there's a lot of agreement that with the hydrogen dense batteries and, and Ronnie explained it the best I've ever seen. It, it has to do with you know, high nickel cathodes need higher temperature, therefore they need hydroxide. And it's as simple as that. And um, so we believe, and I think the market sort of believes that, that hydroxide is going to be, at least for the time being, a real dominant player and, and will continue. And then we have optionality. We can make a chloride, we can make a sulfate. General path for hydroxide and, and what we've evaluated actually is, is the most efficient way to make it because we end up being able to recycle all of our reagents through this process is to go directly from sulfate to hydroxide. And that's a, that's a common industry path. Um, a, a lot of hard rock uh, or even clay projects that you're probably hearing about in the lithium space, they follow that path. But we can also, as we grow, we can, we can still make uh, a lithium chloride. And, and that's important if, you know, um, lithium metal becomes a part of batteries, which if you look at guys like Condomscape, that's what they're contemplating. Um, and lithium chloride is the pre precursor to lithium metal. So we have the optionality there. You know, as the, as the, the battery industry matures, uh, having the ability to be flexible as we grow, we can bring on different streams because of the way the DLE works, the next 20,000 tons could be half, half sulfate to hydroxide and half chloride to metal. You have that flexibility in you know because you own the resource as mm -hmm. well as you are developing the technology in standard yep. lithium's case 
they're partnered with Langzess for the most part. Yes, they have other resources um, that they could build, you know, sometime in the future. But right now, their, their focus of the joint venture, you know, and they position themselves as a technology company. You are a technology company plus a resource company. And, and to your point of going from sulfate to hydroxide or to carbonate, um, you know, that's something we've heard from Lithium America's John Evans, you know, on the clay side, they say, you know, once you get to the sulfate, then they can kind of go in either direction. Once it's in that form, either chloride or sulfate, um, it can go anywhere, right? And the fact that we can make either of those means that there's, there's not a lot of products in the lithium world that people want that we can't make. So it does, it does provide us with and this is why we say like the lithium production side of things is going to be industry standard. It really is. We're not going to be reinventing anything here. We're just going to be using an industry standard and well-recognized process to produce our final product. And that, that reduces the risk significantly um, because again, like, and that's the focus, the focus of the deal is to make the precursor and get it out of the brine. That's the hard work. Once the hard work is done and we have this very clean, very high grade, concentrated in lithium sulfate or lithium chloride, we can make anything. And because it's it's pretty pure, it means that we have less work to get it to battery quality, which is why we have so much confidence that what E3 is gonna produce is gonna be a, a battery product. The, the beauty, we didn't talk about it so much uh, of the, the DLA is not only uh, that it takes a lot shorter than the conventional um, evaporation, yeah. but you know your the purity level of what comes out is is so high. And this is what Lake Resources is constantly talking about. It, it, it's really the consistency of the product that comes out of the process um, is much better than through you know, conventional brines. And the last thing I'll um, just uh, you know compare to, uh, again, you have a technology, you have a resource, but you don't need to get into another business in order to produce lithium. Right. So like the geothermal stories, right. They're like, we're going to get into lithium business, but we have to get into the geothermal business first, unless they're already like some of the there's existing geothermal in the salt and sea. And there are some companies that are, you know, bolting on to that, but, um, you know, maybe in Germany, they'll, they'll latch on to existing geothermal production as opposed to, uh, you know, building the own geothermal themselves. But even in the clays in, in, in Lithium America's case, they have to build sulfuric acid plants. They're getting into the electricity business. They're saying we have a byproduct of our process is that we're going to sell electricity to the grid because we have to generate our own electricity in order to produce our lithium. You don't need to generate your own electricity. You don't need to get into some other business. There's not like additional infrastructure that you need to create is all of that correct like you just you're focused on building lithium in an area where there's enormous existing infrastructure where there's skills who know in the oil and gas industry who understand you know piping and and moving water we can tie into the Alberta grid and get that power um, we we did contemplate a natural gas power plant uh, but we did not contemplate building that we contemplated um, a company here in, in Calgary that builds them, uh, building and operating, and we would just pay them for the power. And so, you know, you'd have, you'd have a power purchase agreement from them. So you would, we would not be a power company. We'd just be dovetailing with them and, and coordinating that effort. So that power plant is there. 
The, the one thing that I would say that we would build, bolt onto this is carbon sequestration to get us down to zero carbon. So that is something that is near and dear to my heart is, is the, the sort of impact to this and, and DLE on, on all fronts is very, it's a very minor impact. You know, you're not, there's no tailings, we're not using fresh water, all those sorts of things are just inherent to DLE, the size of the land we use um, is much smaller. The last piece is, is the carbon footprint and, and having someone build us a gas-fired power plant um, and keeping that behind the fence, 3% of exhaust gas from um, a, a gas-fired power plant is CO2. That's the greenhouse gas. That's what you want to eliminate. The rest is just oxygen and other things and water vapor. So we can take that CO2 using Alberta developed uh, carbon sequestration tech, look at a company called Enhance, um, and we can dispose of that into our uh, into our aquifer and 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 that allows us to capture that CO2 allows us to get down to near or no carbon emissions and I think that's going to be a very important part of the story um, if we're selling the this lithium that's going to eventually end up in OEMs and I think you're going to see a lot of this grow in Alberta as the Canadian carbon tax comes into play so is it, is it fair to call you uh, near zero carbon lithium <laughs> <laughs> we we use the we use the term net or or zero carbon emissions. Um, we didn't trademark it, so we're just trying to be it. We're just trying to actually do it. Okay. Um, yeah, I think it's it's a philosophy for the company, and and I think when you look at government funding, we were talking about earlier. I think that's where we could we could get some significant government funding is is in enabling zero carbon. Chris, thank you very much. Uh, this has been a great update and uh, congratulations on all the um, success over the past kind of 18 months. I know you've been working at this for many years and uh, things happen, things take a long time and then they happen suddenly. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, it's an exciting, you know, 12 to 15 months ahead, I think, toward really proving this out and uh, getting to a, a pre-feasibility study. And, uh, and again, hopefully, uh, following a similar trajectory to some of your DLE peers. Mm -hmm.